This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Adina Jacobs is the director and co-creator of Book of Exodus Part 1 on at TheatreWorks next week. And... Aaron Orzek is the co-creator of the show and dramaturg and is also with us. Welcome to you both. Hi, Richard. Hello. So this is the latest production from Fraught Outfit, your company, Adina, and and yet another production in which you're working with, what, with young people to to make work? Yes. They say you should never do it, but we keep doing it again and again. (laughs) What is it about working with children that fascinates you as a theatre maker? Oh, lots of things. I mean, I think we found that the actual process of making it, um, making work within themselves is really, um, really kind of joyous, actually, and really fulfilling um, in lots of ways. Uh, and also, I think there's, there's a really interesting investigation to be had about what it means to stage quite adult and um, c- complex works with children and teenagers, partly because of the assumptions we have um, that they might not be capable of dealing with such material, but in fact they are and they can shed light on it in ways that are really um, unexpected and quite revealing to us um, as adult creatives and as an audience as well. Which must also then present a number of challenges in terms of duty of care, protecting children from some of the darker, more confronting ideas that you're working with and so on. So as dramaturg, for example, Erin, how do you kind of have those conversations knowing that sometimes you may not be able to necessarily talk frankly about what's happening and what you're asking the kids to do? Um, Well, I suppose we have a um, a lot of things built into the process of working with them that kind of couch all of the darker themes that we work with in a way that feels both kind of honest with the performers um, and also like we're not just kind of throwing a whole lot of horrible stuff at them. Um, And I think, I don't know, I mean, I think the basic attitude we take is that in a way you can approach any material with any performers, however old or young they are, um, but it's about giving giving them the space and the kind of tools to understand it in their own way. Um, So we spend a lot of time in rehearsal um, kind of approaching the material from different angles, whether that's kind of performative angles or whether that's kind of sitting down and just having a chat about it. Um, And, yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting process for us kind of trying to find ways to um, explain these things um, to children and actually more than anything confronts like us as artists with our own assumptions about what they might or might not understand and we're always surprised by their responses. One of the things that surprises me about responses to your company's work as well is uh, thinking about, for example, uh, the Back Eye, which was on at the Melbourne International Arts Festival 2015 at Theatre Works, which, amongst other things, explored young women's uh, sexuality, responses to their sexuality and so forth. Uh, I know that some adults were really confronted by the imagery that they were being presented with in that work, saying, oh, it's not appropriate to, to sexualise young women like that. And I was th- looking at those responses thinking, no, no, these images and ideas have been created by the young women in the production themselves. You're denying them agency in a work which is giving them agency. What kind of responses are the young women and the, the young people that you have worked both in this work and in other works brought to the the rehearsal space that's genuinely surprised you? Yeah, I mean, 
I think I think at the Bakai in particular, what surprised us actually from day one was when we we read the Bakai with them. We started talking about it and sort of asking questions: What do you think it means? And what does freedom mean to you? And you know all these sort of ideas. And straight away, a bunch of you know girls who I think they were sort of thirteen to seventeen at the time said straight away, "Why?" Um, you know, you know, why are women constantly sexualized and then being punished for being sexualized? Um, and uh, or that they being they get punished for their sex. That was their response to the back eye, and we thought, okay, whoa, well, we have to start from here, <laughs> right? And it was really, um, it was really exciting actually to sort of go. We have this opportunity to be using this um, this ancient text and the kind of um, the approach to theatre making that we're really interested in, and then we have this group of really excellent performers, also who are politically engaged and who are personally feel like they have a lot to say, um, and rarely have the opportunity to express it. Um, so it's a really interesting kind of meeting place between our own kind of um, processes and tastes and interests as theatre makers and and the performers we come into contact with and who they are as artists, um, as kind of burgeoning artists, I guess. So this new work, Book of Exodus, is a two-part work. So you're making a trilogy of works, uh, of which this is the third and final part, but you've, like, I know, Hollywood a film franchise, you've split it into, <laughs> uh, into two parts. So the Book of Exodus Part 1 uh, is on from the 31st of May until the 18th of June. And obviously, given the title, this is a response to the biblical Book of Exodus. Why start with that text and what are the kind of themes that you're drawing out from it? Um, one way that we've thought about it is the the first two works of the trilogy um, sort of dealt with um, a divine power um, from an ancient or contemporary text and how that kind of operates in relation to young people. In the first show, it was very much a sort of in an institutional sense um, and there was a sense of a kind of absent divine power. In the second work, that was a very kind of present Dionysian ecstatic power that was manifesting through the bodies of the performers and I think underlying like in a way this text the book of Exodus we'd always referred to in certain ways as a kind of fundamental text about uh, another sort of divine um, violence and kind of parental um, god-like figure um, from this ancient text so that yeah that's sort of the jumping off point in a way um, yeah and I think we you know, it's it's a huge text that spans from Moses to to the desert. But I think, in terms of part one, what we're really interested in is that that initial division that takes place, where God, um, in order to save one group of people, punishes another. And if we sort of look at that as a metaphor or a warning, um, in relation to two young performers, a whole lot of really interesting things come up for us. Now, what I've seen of the company's work previously, there's one of the most striking things has been um, uh, a removal of text-based work and a, a real focus on theatrical imagery and really startling and provocative and powerful scenes which kind of leap off the stage and burn themselves into the retina of, uh, of the people watching. Why the focus on the visual in your work? I think for the very, very reason you've just described, which is that as an audience member myself... I, I want um, something to burn into to my retina or to sort of impress itself upon me in a way that I can't get rid of. Um, and so I think, for me, the visual mode is, is a way of doing that, where you sort of, um, you're operating in a way which bypasses the rational sensor. And, I, and I, you know, we think, we're thinking of this work in particular, but um, Aaron and I have thought of the previous three works as a dream of some kind. And, and hopefully you're sort of... Um, 
sharing that dream with an audience in some ways or that they're trying to kind of spin it out of their own imaginations um, in their own way, which is why everyone has really different responses to the work. Which must also then uh, be a really interesting challenge in terms of... Actually, maybe not so challenging in terms of uh, dramaturgically making these works, Aaron, because it means you are... The words... There's no words to get in the way of the story. You can literally just create scenes and work with them from a, a dramaturgical point of view to make sure that they are enhancing the story rather than the words kind of detracting from it. Yeah, I mean, in a way, the dramaturgy is more choreographic a lot of the time in terms of the, the conversations that we have together. Um, but at the same time, something interesting happens with found when you make this kind of very visual work and then put a piece of text back into it um that's something else we've kind of experimented with a lot um which i think allows the audience to then listen to a piece of text in a new way that isn't related to kind of a character or a scene or something like that but can be more of a a piece of poetry or um you know or a set of ideas that are kind of presented quite clearly in the piece Mm. We're speaking with Adina Jacobs and Aaron Orzek about uh, the latest work from Fraught Outfit, Book of Exodus Part 1, on at TheatreWorks from the 31st of May until the 18th of June. The company has a, obviously a fairly strong relationship with TheatreWorks. You've premiered a number of works yeah. there. Yeah, we premiered Persona in 2012 and then The Backeye in 2015 and now, and now Exodus. So feel like I've been living in theatre works for a very long time. <laughs> What's been great about this particular experience is that we've been actually rehearsing in the space. So on the one hand, it is like a theatre works purgatory where we sort of wake up, we go to theatre works, we sort of go to bed, sort of in theatre works all the time. But it's it's been brilliant because it's given us a really interesting opportunity to be able to make the work in situ from a design point of view. It's It's been excellent. I can imagine, yeah, yeah. it would really enhance the, the aesthetic of the work making it in the space in which it is to be presented yeah Yeah. um and tell us about the young people that you're working with uh in this show are we are are we talking children teenagers a a range of ages um we've got two different casts um in the first cast we have um an eight-year-old boy and an 11-year-old girl Tarana and Sol and in the second cast we have a nine-year-old and an 11-year-old boy Malik and Ezra Um, and so the first cast is performing 10 performances and the second is performing five Um, so we've been working with one cast for a significantly longer time and then we introduce the other one later down the piece so yeah they are they are relatively young and various levels of experience but most of them um, are not very experienced performers. This is quite new for them. How do you source kids for a work like this? Because I know in previous productions you've worked mm. with St Martin's, for example. Um, but how does one go about recruiting children, particularly if you don't have them yourself, for example? I mean, <laughs> yes. Where do we find these children? <laughs> I mean, partly through contacts at St Martin's, partly through, like, younger siblings of performers we've worked, through, worked with. Um, we've approached schools anyone we know who kind of works with children in any way and whose parents and the the kids might be interested in being involved Um, and we've got an associate artist working with us Alex Walker on this project who also worked with us in the back eye and she's an absolutely brilliant artist who works whose practice mainly focuses on young people and so she helps us source it also she helps us um, and collaborates with us in terms of the kind of processes Erin was talking about earlier it fascinates me that even something as simple as casting a work, when you're working with children, you must have to have a very different, more sensitive approach than working with adults. Because for a child being asked to, to audition and then being rejected is presumably going to be much more traumatic than it is for an experienced adult actor. 
I don't know if that's true. Yeah, I think I think because like um, most adult actors are like far more desperate um, and <laughs> jaded than children. Um, another rejection kind of like um, is really is really far worse. And I think for the like the way we've sort of set up the auditions, are often kind of group auditions where it feels more like a workshop um, and less like a kind of test. Um, and often. Um, the children who are kind of first coming into audition, they're really just coming along to play with us. That's what it feels like. And, yeah, it's um, pretty fun. Yeah. And does that sense of play then also extend to and manifested in the, the performances themselves? Yeah, it absolutely does. I mean, it definitely manifests itself in the rehearsal process and we're trying as much as possible to let that sit in the work itself because we want the audience to experience what we've experienced in rehearsal, which is that, that pure play. Book of Exodus Part 1 is on at Theatre Works in 14 Ackland Street, St Kilda, from the 31st of May until the 18th of June, Wednesdays to Saturdays at 7.30pm, Sundays at 5pm. Tickets are $38 for adults, $30 concession, and it runs for 60 minutes with no interval. You can book at theatreworks.org.au and you can find out more information about the company who are creating it, Fraught Outfit, at their website, fraughtoutfit.com.au. I'm very much looking forward to seeing Book of Exodus Exodus Part 1 and then Part 2 a little bit later in the year. Uh, those dates again, the 31st of May until the 18th of June at Theatre Works in St Kilda. Adina and Aaron, thank you very much for joining us here at Triple R. Thanks, Richard. Thanks. Earlier in the year, I chatted on the line to Irish filmmaker John Butler about his latest feature film, Handsome Devil, uh, which opens in cinemas across Australia today. Uh, It's about Ned, a bullied outsider, uh, who is forced to share a room at their rugby-obsessed university with Connor, the new boy and star athlete. Uh, And as you would expect tension arises between the two, given that the rugby team have made Ned's life hell. The two of them seem to take an instant dislike to each other until their English teacher, Andrew Scott, who you may know as Moriarty from Sherlock, um, encourages them into finding one another's voice uh, or their own voice. Uh, So... uh, John Butler is an intriguing filmmaker. Um, The film explores identity, adolescence, courage and humiliation and is a part of an an ongoing exploration that Butler has into contemporary masculinity. Handsome Devil, as I said, opens in cinemas today. I caught up uh, with Butler a couple of months ago when he was in Australia for the Mardi Gras Film Festival screening of Handsome Devil and we had a bit of a chat then which I've been waiting to put to air. John, Handsome Devil is, to a degree, uh, how autobiographical is this film? I get the sense that there are certainly personal aspects and personal elements of your life reflected in it, but it is a work of fiction, isn't it? It is, yeah. It's 47.5% autobiographical. <laughs> it's uh, my childhood in part, but then as it, as a jumping off point. Um, so it's the story of two boys from kind of contrasting sides of the social spectrum who are forced to share a room together at their rugby playing boarding school. And they start off hating each other, but under the kind of tutorship of an English teacher, they come to learn that they have a lot in common. And I grew up in Ireland in the 80s and went to a school very similar to this. And so uh, I would have experienced a known people like this and it all sprang from that basically. 
And there's a, a line in the film which resonates for me and I think for anybody, the, the reference to embarrassment uh, for anyone who's been embarrassed, which is pretty much everyone ever, one of the characters says. Um, why structure a film around a humiliating moment uh, in adolescence as opposed to uh, uh, a moment of joy or a moment of tragedy? Because I think if you... If you could only choose one emotion that dominates the young adulthood of every human being, it would be embarrassment. And certainly that's what characterized my young life was a feeling, a constant feeling of embarrassment and of humiliation. Um, because you're always being told what to do by authority figures. You know, whatever you do is never exactly right. Um, you never feel comfortable in your own skin. You don't have any independence. You don't have any money. Um, your body is changing. Your mind is changing. You're trying to figure out who you are. I just think that's the dominant kind of emotion of your young adult life and you know it's an argument for giving people who feel different as much compassion as as you can while they're going through those difficult years you know it's a it is a anyone who tells you that your school days are the best days of your life is a dangerous idiot i think because <laughs> um, <laughs> they're not there nobody believes that really they're just a nightmare <laughs> and certainly for queer teenagers, I think school environments are one of the most traumatic of environments because it's particularly, I mean, uh, for myself growing up as a gay kid in the country in the in the 70s and 80s, uh, it's very difficult to be yourself in, a, in an aggressive homophobic environment. The culture has changed, but even today, uh, schools are not positive environments for, for young queer kids. No, the word gay, like it says in the film, the word gay means crap or stupid, or bad, or different. Um, the word gay has absolutely no positive connotations to the world when you're growing up. And so to attempt to truthfully identify as something that is just considered to be bad is so hard to do. And, you know, the world has come on in so many regards. You know, in Ireland last year, we passed marriage equality by a vote of the people, first country to do so. But it's still unbelievably rubbish growing up as an LGBT kid um, in any country in the world. And it's so hard. Um, but this is really a story, I would say, about identity. So it's not just about sexual orientation. There's something for every young person to identify with in this film because you're always being told that you have to pick a side, that you have to be a certain type of person, that you have to declare your allegiance you have to be one single thing and sometimes the bravest thing is not to be one thing at all but to be a little bit of everything so yeah it's a film about identity and having the courage to be yourself now your first film the stag was about masculinity and that seems to be an ongoing uh, area of interest for you because certainly what it means to be a man and different ways to be a man whether it's uh being an individual and true to yourself whether it's being a, a rugby playing uh, meathead, um, uh, there's, there's all different versions of masculinity presented in Handsome Devil. Why does the study of men fascinate you as a filmmaker? I, it's, it's, it's a good question. I think it's male friendship that fascinates me. I just, men get such incredible comfort out of deep personal friendships with other men. And at the same time, men are kind of generally acknowledged to be rubbish about sharing their innermost feelings. And yes, their friendships with other men are so strong, you know, and there's a kind of little paradox at the heart of that that fascinates me, you know? Um, so yeah, I, I just, I seem always to return to that, the idea of, of what it means to be a man, how men relate to men, straight and gay, you know, what male friendship means, what the value of it is. I can't seem to stop writing about it. 
Now, one of the things that fascinated me going into the film, uh, it had been pitched to me in a certain way. So I went in with certain expectations thinking, okay, I'm essentially going to be watching a a gay coming-of-age film. What fascinated me is that the main narrative of the film is focused on a heterosexual young character. The gay characters are... uh, their stories are significant in the film, but they're not the dominant threads. And initially, I was slightly uncomfortable. I was going, oh, why are gay people being used as to, to kind of help nurture this young straight man on his journey? Why isn't the, the focus on their journey? But then I started to change my the way I was thinking about the film. I realised I was thinking about it from perhaps the wrong angle. Uh, talk to us about constructing these characters and constructing the story so that uh, it is a story which will appeal to gay audiences and straight audiences and uh, audiences who don't have any particular sexual identity. Because, as you said, you haven't set out to make a gay film as such. You've made a film in which some characters are gay, some characters are straight, and they interrelate in complicated ways, just as real life is complicated. Well, yeah, it's a really interesting question because I don't know if film itself has a sexual orientation. (laughs) Like, you know, the presence of gay characters is vitally important to me in the work that I do. Like, they were, you know, I had a gay couple on a stag, and there's at least one, there's at least two, there's maybe three characters in Handsome Devil who, who wouldn't identify as straight, let's put it that way. And I think that'll always be something that I look to include. But I'm reluctant to uh, kind of ascribe a sexual orientation to the genre of film that I make. I think gay characters pervade society at every level, and as such need to be included regardless of what the kind of message of the film it's like that's just a matter to me of like proportional representation and then the other thing i feel is that i wouldn't be so sure about ned's orientation i just um i always i don't know if he's gay i don't know if he's straight i don't know if he's just an ally um but what's far less important to me on those terms is that he is a lonely boy who's looking for a friend um so as such i don't know if he is a straight character whose story is being supported and told by the gay characters around him i wouldn't be absolutely certain about uh, his sexual orientation but i think it's kind of a modern idea that that we reject the binary definition of straight and gay as well and just allow these characters to be you know and to allow them to be embody a little bit of everything you know so um that was vitally important to me as well that ultimately it's just a story about human beings who are lonely and a bit lost and looking for help from each other John, one of the things that also struck me uh, while watching Handsome Devil is there is a timeless quality to it. I was uncertain what era it was set in, and I uh, am assuming, again, from you that's deliberate because you want it to be contemporary and have a sense of now, but you're also evoking your own schoolhood days as well and those Mm. uh, in times past. Mm, Absolutely, yeah. I wanted it to feel a little bit like a fairy tale, if possible. I didn't want... Uh, people to understand exactly where in the world it was or at exactly what time and the idea with that was hopefully that the message would just resonate because it is a kind of a very modern idea that one of of not picking a single identity you know when I look at generation below me in terms of the the um, kids that are coming up today they don't seem to be as uh, consumed with that idea and um, and so it's interesting to keep all of that very vague and then just allow the story to hopefully resonate with people no matter where they are in the world you know you don't want it to be a story that a guy from England can't relate to equally well as a guy in Australia or a guy in New Zealand or a guy in Dublin, you know. I think we all recognise what it is to go, you know, to see that world of boarding school, to see that male um, dominated environment and then we all recognise those struggles of coming of age and, you know, the expectations involved in being a man. So they're much more important to me than making a kind of a period film with, you know, 
kind of funny digital watches or or at the same time making a really modern film where the, you know there's lots of mobile phones and Snapchat and all that that stuff doesn't matter to me I think the bones of the story are far more interesting I wanted also to ask about the response to the film because I know it's shown at the uh, in Glasgow in Dublin uh, there's a screening coming up at the Mardi Gras Film Festival in Sydney what's the response to the film been like from audiences? It's been amazing and, and it's enormously gratifying. When you make something that's kind of personal, you know, you're obviously terrified when it's about to come out into the world. But um, Toronto was huge, great response at a difficult festival to make noise in, and we got some very nice reviews. But what's more important to me, much more important than critical response, is that uh, young people and young LGBT people and uh, cinema audiences, generally speaking, go for it. And that's certainly been the case in Glasgow and Dublin and Toronto and hopefully this evening in Sydney and then we're going to Perth after that so yeah it seems to be going down very well people seem to be recognising their own childhoods in it and that's so important and, and it's really gratifying to see yeah they like it they seem to really like it well I liked it too so I'm glad that audiences are responding to Thank it you. positively as well uh, tell us for people who aren't familiar with uh, Irish screen culture generally how healthy how strong is the Irish uh, film industry pretty good we're kind of punching above our weight at the moment i think the last couple of years have been very successful you know we've had um lots of oscar nominated uh, films in different categories and you know our our film business is, is booming we're obviously attracting a lot of overseas production to ireland but that's not nearly as important to me and i think to the irish people as the film board supporting irish storytellers to tell irish stories and that's certainly the case you know the irish film board is a great uh it's a great uh, entity and it's so supportive. You can apply for funding and receive funding to make a low-budget feature. And that really sets you on the path, but it also gives you the opportunity to tell stories um, about yourself and your own culture. And I think that's so important because we kind of need to know who we are through watching films. Um, so, yeah, the film business is doing really well in Ireland and I hope our government continues to fund it at the same level, if not more. It also strikes me having watched uh, not uh, quite a few, well I've certainly seen a few, quite a few Irish films over the past decade or more um, and it, it's been interesting to see that films seem to be shifting away from a self-conscious exploration of in inverted commas Irishness and are just now yes. telling stories that are made in Ireland. Does that kind of resonate with you? I completely agree with that, and I think that's a kind of confidence. You know, for me, Irish storytelling is storytelling with Irish creative talent at the heart of it, no matter what the subject matter is. And I think that's what's important. You know, I think you're dead right. Um, I think previously in the 80s, you know, we came of age with stories about the IRA and kind of lonely farmers staring out of windows and, you know, that deep examination and soul-searching about who we were, because, you know, we're a young country in one regard, and that dominated our kind of cultural output. But I think now, you're right, it's just, you know, like Room, which Lenny Abrahamson made, which did so well at the Oscars two years ago. Like, that's a film that's set in Canada, you know, with uh, a largely American cast, but all the creative talent behind it is Irish, and as such, that's an Irish film, you know. And that's confidence, I think, you know, that we can go and tell our stories to the world now and feel that they're, you know, they have a place um, in the in the the world market, as it were. It's a, it's a big change, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's very positive to see. One of the other things that's very positive, to come back specifically now to Handsome Devil, is it's still rare, I think, particularly for young people, to be told that you can love sport 
and be and be attracted to people of the same sex and the same gender. Uh, and for me, that was a fascinating element of the film. I'm used to to films with queer characters in which the characters are outsiders or they're uh, they're yes. hustlers or they're they're punks or whatever. But to yes. have at the heart of your story um, a brilliant rugby player who is also a, a attracted to men uh, was a really intriguing element of the film for me. That's, yeah, it's so true. You know, that was the story of my childhood as a gay kid who loved sport and was, you know, pretty decent at sport. I couldn't see a single role model around for that um, set of circumstances. And so I didn't think it was possible to embody those two things. Um, I thought you had to choose. And, you know, it, it's incredible that in 2017 there isn't a single out premiership soccer player. There's no rugby union players that are out, you know, and I refuse to believe that they're not there. So but society just isn't a place where they feel comfortable doing that. But, you know, as a filmmaker, it's for me, I'm, I, I'm gay and, and I love to tell uh, stories that have LGBT characters in it, but I refuse or don't want to be ghettoized as a result of that. Like we belong very firmly in the mainstream along with everybody else. And I think that's highly um, important, you know. I grew up on a diet of uh, film where the LGBT characters, like you say, were cast as outsiders. You were always kind of outside looking in, and their difference was being worn as a badge of kind of defiance, and there's some wonderful work there. But I think it's time for some stories to acknowledge that we belong at the very centre of things as well, and that our sexual orientation doesn't need to exclude us from activities that people associate with, you know, masculinity, whatever that means, you know. So if I have a kind of mission, permission kind of statement, I suppose that would be it, that we belong everywhere, you know. John Butler's film, Handsome Devil, is in cinemas today. You can find out more information about it at uh, au.rialtodistribution.com where you can see the trailer. Uh, and, yeah, it's a, it's a simple but quite gentle and lovely film. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I recommend it. It's time for us to turn now to the visual arts and an ongoing series of exhibitions called Exploration, now up to Exploration 17 at the Flinders Lane Gallery, which, as its name would suggest, is in Flinders Lane, Melbourne, 137 Flinders Lane, to be exact. And it's an opportunity for artists who are not commercially represented, who are perhaps emerging or uh, uh, unsigned artists, to present their work in a commercial context where it can be seen by collectors, buyers and more. Joining us to tell us all about the exhibition and to talk about about some of the art involved. We have the gallery director, Claire Harris. Claire, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having us. Very great pleasure. And two of the participating artists, Holly Pierce and Ryan Poller. Welcome to you both. Good morning. Hi. So, Claire, as the name suggests, this is the 17th iteration of the series. Why did you begin it? Um, when I started at the gallery, I was working for the former director, Sonia Heitlinger, and um, she gave me a bit of leeway to start, do something, curate a show, and I thought, well, what I'd really like to do is um, have a show for unsigned artists and to do that. So I started that in 2000 and then I just continued on each year. It's a really um, enjoyable show to put together and it's challenging and it gives artists just this really nice opportunity to exhibit at the gallery um, in a commercial space and be shown and and it's a lot of fun. So, yeah, I keep doing it. And what kind of outcomes does it have for the artists concerned? Oh, well, quite a lot of them um, do get end up getting signed on to commercial galleries. We've actually signed on a number of artists over the years who've started in exploration. So among those artists like Catherine Ryan, who was in the very first um, exploration in 2000, 
um, William Bray and Gary Pumphrey, we've got quite a number of artists who started in the exploration, but we do see a lot of them have gone on to become really quite uh, art stars in the scene and that's always really exciting because we think oh my goodness they were an inspiration that's so nice to see them doing so well so so for i guess uh, holly and ryan uh, talk to us then about the opportunity to participate in this exhibition series what does it mean for you personally uh, and professionally Oh, I think it's amazing that Flinders Lane provides this platform for us as emerging artists. It's a really steep learning curve. And to be taken seriously as an artist, I guess we all want that. But it's also to be put in just a more professional context. So it's really important. And Claire's chosen work that's not um, always completely safe. So I think that's fantastic. The show looks amazing. And there's a real diversity of the work. So it's... Yeah, it's a, it's a risky show and I like being a part of that. So that's good for me in terms of a commercial gallery context. Yeah, I definitely agree with Holly. And I think for myself personally, coming out of university last year, my Bachelor of Visual Art, this um, exhibition gave me a real chance to explore and grow from what I was doing. And I think the platform that it's on really encouraged me to push myself more. And I think we can see that with the other artists as well. Like there's so, so much beautiful work in the show. Now, there's 11 artists uh, participating uh, all together with the exhibition. Would you have previously exhibited, say, in an ARI or somewhere like that, curating your own show? And if so, having uh, an external eye uh, and a professional eye to help you watch select work, present work, what kind of impact has that had on the way you're looking at your own works? Mm. Uh, well, I'll just for, for me, it was about scale and about what work, I do a range of work from 2D and 3D work and then what work might fit in with the commercial gallery setting or um, Claire, for instance, wanted my work to be larger, which I think is fantastic, and just having that outside eye to discuss the, the best way your work can be viewed was really important to me and that's been really great. For myself, I enjoyed the process of not having to run the gallery in the sense where I got to focus more on creating, which was quite lovely, so I thank the gallery owners for that. <laughs> that was nice. Um, yeah, but definitely for myself, um, being part of it, just in like in like a space like this, allow me to focus more on what I'm creating instead of the process of putting it together in the show sense. Yeah, um, and also then means you don't have to invigorate the show as well, yes. which I'm sure is an added bonus. So yes. yeah, um, Claire, what is it about Holly's work and Ryan's work that spoke to you and you thought I want to include them in this exhibition? Mm. Well, with Holly's work, it's her work is um, photographic. She manipulates and layers it, so it's like a collage effect. They're very, um, very kind of freaky and funky and strong colours. And there's the referencing to witchcraft and um, paganism, and then it's offset with this very contemporary contextualization and large scale. They just are dynamic, and so I just thought, look, that's really bold and strong work and it was beautifully put together so um, when I saw them I just thought they were lovely quality as well and they really had this impact immediate impact and when um, Ryan came in with his and he does very fine beautiful drawing he's amazing amazing drawer I was the quality of the work and he's such a young fellow and I was just like oh my god you are it's beautiful what beautiful work and then on top of that he puts 
with these absolutely gorgeous drawings of, of women and not, not conventionally beautiful women either, like interesting faces, he has these elements like really creepy, quirky additions like spiders and octopus and insects and weird things and then these little accents of colour. It's very beautifully done and really intriguing. So, And there's an interesting connecting thread between both mm. your works in terms of an exploration or uh, referencing of, for example, pagan goddesses or yeah. uh, uh, and that kind of yes. representation as yeah. well. So, <laughs> that was a funny yes, word. Yeah. 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 So the, the fact that yeah. there is a dialogue happening between the works yeah. as well. Mm. Were you at all familiar with one another's practices before uh, you were uh, placed into Exploration 17? Not at all. No, not at all. <laughs> it's a nice, nice chance happening. <laughs> yeah, it really was a chance happening because I was looking up, because um, Ryan's got a drawing, Hecate, and I was, I reference Hecate and a lot of the shape-shifting um, visual elements in my work. And so, and that's a passion of mine, this other sort of element of femininity. And so, yeah, I think that's a really beautiful link. Mm. That, let's ex- just expand on that a little bit. Mm. As a representation of uh, of kind of a feminine tradition or a feminist tradition rather than a tri- what people may think of as a traditional representation of the feminine. You're mm. referencing this darker, more uh, more powerful, mm. more confronting uh, mm. feminist tradition. Why explore that in your work? Me? Or, yeah. Well, I think these archetypes are really important. I think that the way that the general media has presented women, don't get mm. me on my bandwagon, but um, <laughs> has been two-dimensional. And I think that as women and as people we're multi-dimensional um, I also think that these archetypes that have been celebrated are uh, the good girl or the good wife or uh, aren't actually represented in ancient fairy tales you have these wonderful magical witches and these um, I think the patriarchy and this is sort of behind has tried to reduce femininity and the power that feminine um, women have and Femininity has the power of creation and they've tried to reduce that. And I think all these ancient goddesses, they were protecting the sacred feminine. And I think that like Hecate and... Yeah, so I try to sort of put that into my work at all times and through ceremony and ritual as well, not just um, femininity but masculinity. So combining the power of the true essences of both. And Ryan, you were well nodding said. in agreement there. <laughs> yeah, no, well said. I liked mm. that. I don't know if I can phrase it better myself. <laughs> um, the fact that your works, as we've said, not only then representing a different version of, of, yeah. of strong female figures and, and archetypes, but bringing in elements of the natural world as well. So there's one image, for example, with a, a woman in a bathing suit cradling an octopus and with kind of insects crawling about her and birds flying around her. Why bring the natural world into these images? Um, I like to use the natural world as symbols for what I'm trying to represent in the drawing. So definitely in that drawing, I was looking at the experiences of a friend and what she'd been through and how she was trying to go through a um, instance of protecting herself. So a lot of the insects in there that are crawling over her are cleaners, and it's about like cleaning that yourself of that negativity you've been through. And the octopus, to my side, she's cradling it, but the octopus is quite um, an ingenious creature in finding ways into things and out of things. And I think that was um, representing what she was doing in that instance. Holly, I was intrigued by the fact that you spoke about uh, patriarchal pressure reducing women to, to two-dimensional objects, mm-hmm. which is 
interesting in that you, the work in this exhibition are 2D works. You haven't expanded them out into, into sculpture. Tricky. <laughs> oh, into sculpture. No, in my 3D work, I actually explore the shadow, so the sort of the concept of the um, psychological shadow. So... Uh, it's more abstracted. And in here, yes, they're reduced to 2D forms. And it's sort of, in a way, in the in this particular work, in this in Exploration 17, they're, um, well, I guess they're symbols of talismans and shapes that that I want to provide pattern as a gateway, sort of, because everything's a gateway. They're sort of liminal spaces and nothing needs to make sense in those spaces. So space is um, shortened or expanded. So 3D and 2D elements work together. So they're compressed and expanded. So they sort of, I don't know. We're talking about the exhibition Exploration 17 on at Flinders Lane Gallery uh, on now until the 17th of June and the gallery's at 137 Flinders Lane. We've got two of the 11 artists represented in the exhibition with us in the studio, Ryan Poehler and Holly Pierce, and gallery director Claire Harris. Claire, tell us about the some of the other nine artists represented. We probably don't have time to go through all of them and their, and their practices in detail, but some other, uh, any uh, kind okay, of particular well, p- in- pieces you'd like to speak to? Well, they're in the main gallery space. So when you walk in, there's a, an area over to the left and that's where Holly is and there's another um, fabulous painter called Michael Sims who's done some very dark, beautiful, realist works, also with a little twist to them. But in the main space, we've got some very strong abstractionists. So we've got Annie Simpson-Barry who's done some large three-dimensional, very colourful sculptural pieces and they're in the centre of the space. And we've got Raymond Carter on the left-hand side walls and he's actually worked with cloth tape on MDF which creates very uh, strong, abstract, very clean abstraction um, and they're very dynamic. And on the back wall we have Jimmy Langer and he's done this really interesting digital wallpaper. So it goes all across the wall and then down onto the floor as well. So that's um, there's quite a number of artists who are actually utilising new media as well. So you can see there's experimentation with all different technologies and things like that in a show. Um, Jay Koshel, for example, he's, his work is based around a Japanese Zen garden where he saw the rocks and then he created inflatable rocks and then he um, deflated those rocks and then did a computer algorithm of the de- deflated rocks and then basically has created these prints using an acrylic pen and a computer following that algorithm and has done these very beautiful, fine, white-lined on um, black uh, digital prints that are panelled and they're absolutely beautiful and they're of these deflated Zen Garden rocks. So there's some really interesting interesting mediums and um, works in the show. So if you want to get along to Exploration 17, it's on now until the 17th of June at Flinders Lane Gallery, 137 Flinders Lane, Melbourne. Open Tuesdays to Friday, 11am to 6pm, Saturdays, 11am to 5pm. And you can check out the website, uh, examples of work and more at www.flg.com. Au. We've been talking to gallery director Claire Harris and artists Ryan Poehler and Holly Pierce. Thanks to the three of you for joining us. Thank, Thank you. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.